As she indicated, the church in America has a problem, a Bible problem, specifically the fact that we really, many of us, do not know the Bible as we should. Now let me start by saying, I don't want anyone in here to hear anything I say today as being condemnatory. I'm not trying to impose guilt on anyone. That doesn't do anyone any good. Let's see where we are individually, and let's start there and go forward. Some of her statistics were a little different from mine, but I saw a statistic that said three out of ten Christians read their Bibles every day. And that's good, but that means seven out of ten do not. Statistic that was even more shocking was that 50%, that half of all Christians reported they don't read their Bible at all throughout the week. They only read it on Sundays. Guys, I love you, but reading a few verses up here during a sermon is not reading the Bible. The Bible is composed of 66 books. When you read a book, you start at the beginning of an individual book, and you systematically go through it. You don't take a verse here. You don't take a verse there. And, you know, like the Our Daily Bread, that's better than nothing. But really, just jumping one day from this verse to another day to that one is not really giving you the kind of understanding of the Bible that we all need and that will help us in our greatest times of need. You know, it has never been throughout the entire history of mankind, it has never been easier to read the Bible than it is today. How many of you have a Bible app on your computer, uh, tablet, or cell phone? Raise your hand. Okay. And Bible apps are, are just ubiquitous. Many times, though, they sit on our phones or wherever and barely get touched. And again, I'm not trying to condemn. I'm just pointing out facts. It's never been easier to read the Bible. If you don't have a nap, the Bible is available in many English translations on the internet for free. But while it's never been easier to read the Bible, it has also never been easier not to read the Bible. I can't even begin to tell you, but I don't need to, you know it yourself, all the distractions that are out there. The internet, you by itself, can keep you occupied for the rest of your life. When I was a kid, we had three TV stations, and it was like a, a Christmas in June when we got a fourth, even though it was black and white and a bit fuzzy. Now, there are literally hundreds of TV channels. There are, on YouTube, I googled it to try to find out the number. And by the way, we all know Google was invented by men because Google thinks it knows everything. But Google says that there are, that Amazon sells some 12 million products. When I was a kid, we had a Sears catalog, maybe about that thick. I never counted, but let's say there were a thousand items they sold. Now, Amazon sells 12 million. So 12,000 times 
what it used to be. And if you include their marketplace, that number goes up to, to where they sell 350 million items. I also Googled uh, the number of videos that you can find on YouTube. And there are nearly a billion YouTube videos and more being uploaded every day. We have sounds around us all the time. Many of us get home from work or school. One of the first things we do is turn on something to give us some sound, TV, internet, whatever. It has never been easier to read it, and it's never been more challenging to read it. So as I was looking at Psalm 119, I just wondered, Am I going to find, are we going to find there any kind of motivation, anything to help us read the Bible? Because Psalm 119 is all about God's Word. In fact, there are three Psalms that especially focus on God's Word. Psalm 119 is one. I'll let you see if you can discover the other two. But as I was looking at it, I did find an answer. Again, not the answer, but an answer. It's one that I had never seen before, even though it's stated right there in the very first verse. So I'd like to ask you, invite you to turn to Psalm 119, and I'm going to read aloud the first eight verses of this psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes, do not utterly forsake me. You probably know Psalm 119 is the longest of all the Psalms, the 150 Psalms. By far, it's the longest. In fact, it's longer than twice as long as every other chapter in the Bible, with one exception, which is Numbers chapter 7. Psalm 119 is longer than 14 books in the Old Testament. It's longer than 17 books in the New Testament. Why is it so long? Because it's composed of 22 stanzas or groups of verses. And each of those stanzas has eight verses each. So since seven-fifths of all people struggle with math, I'll go ahead and tell you 22 times 8 means there's 176 verses in this psalm. But... Don't let its length deter you. In fact, I want to give a challenge to teens going on momentum. Before momentum is over, read through the entirety of Psalm 119. Or else we won't let you back in. Now, <laughs> it is long. It seems imposing. But my mother-in-law and probably half of her church memorized Psalm 119 in the past. And she kept it for the rest of her life through some regular review. So if she can memorize it, we can at least read it. There are 22 stanzas composed of eight verses each. Why eight? Because there are eight 
primary words, synonyms for God's Word used in Psalm 119. I did not give you those on your sermon notes. I wanted to, but if I had done that, I knew I'd essentially be taking up all the space on the notes page. I do highly encourage you, if you have an interest, go to uh, Blue Letter Bible or some of those other websites and look up a commentary on Psalms, and it can do a great job describing for you the fine nuances of each of those words. I have given you eight words on your notes. All eight of those pertain to these first eight verses in Psalm 119. It's just a coincidence that there are eight verses, eight words used to refer to God's Word and eight key words I hunted out from the first eight verses. There is one major word, though. We'll go over this in a moment, but one major word I'll go ahead and alert you to now, and that's the word law. This word is used 25 times in Psalm 119. It's used more than any other uh, word for God's word. And in fact, it more so serves as like an umbrella under which all the other, the seven other terms sit. By the way, I discovered this week that there's a Christian website that offers free use of artificial intelligence to try to come up with a sermon outline. Now, I already had my outline. I had mine given to Chriselle. She had already done all the slides and the notes. But I th So I thought, why not just look at it? Well, what it came up with, frankly, was okay. But I really didn't see much tie-in with the verses, these first eight verses. And that reminds me why it is, it seems that I always do things that just don't require intelligence. <laughs> what I've given you in your notes is a very simple outline. And it's one that kind of jumped out at me pretty much from the start. Do you remember in English class how we can write or speak about three persons? There's the first person, I or me or we. Second person is always you, whether an individual or a group. And third person is he, she, somebody we're talking about, but not talking to. That's the kind of structure we see here in these first eight verses. The first three are written from the perspective of the third person, as the psalmist looks at various people and derives some lessons from their lifestyle. Verse four addresses God, you, and consequently it's in the second person. The last four verses are in the first person. What he says is, now that I've seen how God treats people who live a certain way, now that I understand a little better about why God revealed himself in the first place, now in these four verses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal what my response is and should be. So, Verses 1 through 3 give us the big picture. They also really serve as an intro to the entire psalm. Verse 4, once again, God's perspective. Verses 5 through 8, what it is that we should do. And by the way, just as there's a flow of thought, as I just pointed out in these first eight verses, so there is a flow of thought in each individual stanza. 
Now, I didn't realize that until I began preparing for this message. I thought all these verses were, were just kind of random, but they're not. There is a logic to the, the progression within each stanza. And by the way, with, after the first three verses, the, the psalmist does not talk about God's Word in isolation. What I mean is, it's not, I want to read God's Word, or I will read and memorize the Torah. It's always your law. It's always your Word, meaning God. So when he decides to devote himself to God's Word, that's really just a tool. His ultimate is to get to know God better. And that's why we ought to read the Bible as well. But keep in mind always that the Bible is a means to an end. It's to help us know God. It's not that we try to become experts in the Bible itself. If that's the end goal for you, that accomplishes nothing. The whole purpose of mankind is to know God and live in ways that please Him. I've told you I've pointed out eight words on your notes. I'm, I do want to highlight just a few of those. The first one is the word blessed. To bless or blessed, to be blessed, is to experience God's favor. To experience a, a transcendent joy. Transcendent meaning it goes beyond our circumstances. It's uh, a happiness, if you will, that's, but it's one that's defined by God and His standards. Not just any old kind of happiness out there that we can find. Second word that's key is the word blameless. Now in English, that makes it sound like someone is perfect. That they don't have any sin at all. And that's not what the Hebrew word means. Besides, that's impossible. There's no person who does not sin. First John starts out telling us that. So a much better way of thinking of blameless would be to substitute the word righteous or upright. Someone who is, means what they say and say what they mean when they, they're not hypocritical. Their spiritual walk, life matches their spiritual talk. I was walking on my college campus one day and I hear these, these words, Goodson, how's your walk? Well, I saw this gal coming toward me, and she was a Christian. We were in the same InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We were in different individual small groups, but the big group got together every month or so, and I knew her from that. And, well, I was walking to class, and it was like a mile and a half walk, so I said, uh, a bit tiring, honestly, how's your walk? And she said, Goodson, that's not what I mean. Read your Bible. And so... I said, well, okay. And I, I didn't say it, but I kind of thought that, you know, maybe going to college was her second choice. Perhaps her first choice was to be a drill sergeant in the Army. But she got rejected from being too harsh. But on the other hand, I appreciated that because here was a person, even in, in the midst of a crowd, who would call me out and say, Goodson, how are you doing spiritually? And not just are you reading your Bible, are you living it? 
So while her style wasn't my style, it was a good beneficial uh, challenge to me. Just about every time I ran into her, she asked the same question. One other, so that's why I put down there the word walk. To, to walk simply means how you live, to conduct yourself. Another very important word is the word law. The Hebrew word for this is the word Torah. Many of you have probably heard that word. The law or the Torah was used in several different ways. First of all, it was used to describe the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah, these five books, were, were the focus of the Jews. And the reason for that was, and a lot of Christians don't realize this, but those five books are the foundation for the remainder of the Old Testament. And in fact, for the New Testament as well. Yeah, those five books gave God's laws, but also gave ways to properly worship, to properly approach God. They, those five basically were everything. And in fact, the remainder of the Old Testament is simply how Israel lived out their lives, whether they were obedient or disobedient to those five books. And yet, most Christians, let's be honest, most Christians kind of, sort of, mostly avoid those books, don't we? Oh, we might read Genesis. I mean, it's got some pretty wild stories in it. We get started in Exodus and those plagues. But before long, we hit the laws. And we hit God describing how they should build the tabernacle. And not only do we have God describing how to do it, then we have descriptions of how they did do it. And so it just seems like what a mindless repetition, although it's not. And then if we get that far, we get to Leviticus and all the ways to offer the sacrifices and the various steps along the way. And many people stop there. But if you make it to Numbers, then the first few chapters deal with numbers more than you would want. And there's also laws in there, and that's easy to bog down. Then you get to Deuteronomy, and I think Deuteronomy is a fantastic book. Believe it or not, it's composed of just three sermons. So you think I go long sometimes? Moses had a long couple of sermons. But they're excellent because Moses is talking about talking to the generation, not the generation that came out of Egypt, because they had so disobeyed the Lord that he had told them they were not allowed to enter the land he wanted to give them. He was going to wait until they died off. It's the second generation that Moses is addressing. And he is pleading with them, y'all, obey the Lord. Walk with him. That is, live in light of, his, of the knowledge you can get from his word. Live in light of the things I've told you, Moses says, and your life will be blessed. And it's like, again, he's just begging, pleading them, do what is good, what is best for yourself. Uh, they somewhat did, but mostly didn't. And really the remainder of the Old Testament is, highlights a lot of Israel's failures, so much so that they actually got 
kicked out of their land. The Lord basically got fed up and said, that's it, you're out of here for a while. While Torah or law refers to those first five books, what we miss so many times is the fact that those first five books not only show us God's laws, but also depict for us God's power. How he was able to deliver his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and eventually into their own land, helping them conquer it and giving it to them, not because they deserved it, because he set his love upon them and wanted to do something good for them. Those first five books also talk about God's holiness, his love, his grace, and again, his standards for our conduct. But I hope one result of today's sermon is that once you walk out of here, whenever you see the word law, especially in the Old Testament, don't think of it primarily as commands. Because that's not the ultimate intent. What law, what Torah means at its root is instruction, teaching. In fact, there are verses where that noun Torah is changed into a verb, an action word, and their translators can't translate it as like as law because that wouldn't make sense. They translate it as teach or instruct. Solomon does that in, in the book of Proverbs. Listen, my son, to my teaching. So when you see the word law, don't always think of laws. Don't always think of commands. I mean, let's face it. Who wants to open a book and read a bunch of commands and find out how we're not measuring up and how God's disappointed and even angry, righteously angry about it? Nobody wants to do that. And I think that's one of the major reasons why people don't read their Bible is they think that that's what they're going to find on every page. It's not. God's law, God's Torah is intended for our instruction so we know who He is and know the kind of lives we should live as a result. In fact, if you look down in Psalm 119, just look at verse 12. You'll see, blessed, I don't have that up here, but blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. That's that word Torah. He couldn't say law me your statutes, it's teach me. Because that's the root idea of law or Torah. Instruct me, help me know you better, Lord. And in verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight. As much as in all riches. Nobody delights in reading commands. The psalm writers were human. He would not have been able to say this if every time he opened it up, all he got was condemnations and you oughtas and you better not. No. I want you, I hope you will begin to look at God's word in an entirely different way because it is there to help us. And keeping along that theme, I want to turn you back to the first couple of ver- first three verses of our passage. I want to look at those with a little more depth. 
<clears throat> What's the one of the first? No, what is the first word in verse one? Anybody? Blessed. What's the first word in verse two? Blessed. Okay, if you and if you go by the English Standard Version, you'll notice that at the end of verse one. That's the end of a sentence. But with verse 2, at the end there's a comma. Because it also ties into verse 3. How do we know that? Because the word also in verse 3 shows us that that thought from verse 2 hasn't been completed yet. Look at the punctuation at the end of verse 1 in the ESV. Now the Hebrew and Greek originally did not have punctuation didn't have exclamation points, didn't have quotation marks, uh, question marks, period, none of that. So these are, when inserted, these are the decisions of the translators. But they're not just making these decisions willy-nilly. There's a reason behind it. And we can't see it in English, but in the Hebrew, these three verses are very compact. And the Hebrews would use that method to emphasize some of their statements. And that's why the ESV translators put an exclamation point at the end of verse 1. They also put an exclamation point at the end of verse 3. That means blessed applies to all six of the statements within these three verses. While we're at it, there's an exclamation point at the end of verse 5. Not only that, exclamation mark at the end of verse 8. So these first eight verses are strongly emphasized right from the start. And if there's anything that is emphasized above all, it is the word blessed. Do you believe that God wants to bless you? Now, I don't mean that in, just intellectually. In your heart of hearts, do you believe God has good things for you? Or do you think he's kind of like an ogre teacher who you know, doesn't smile all year and just can't wait to point out things you're doing wrong? I had some of those. I don't know that they really exist today. But that's not a picture, an accurate picture of God. In fact, I really think that's a deception that Satan himself has planted among Christians to think that God's word is all rules. It's all... Thou shalt not. And again, that kind of thing would repel us. It would turn us away from God's word. God does want to bless you. How do we know that? Well, he says so right in the very first word of this psalm. He says it in the very first word of verse 2. And as I said, that blessed continues through verse 3. So as I already mentioned Six statements that are describing obedient believers in these first three verses. And God promises blessing to people who do these kinds of things. <clears throat> also, um, there's an entire book of the Bible that starts with the word blessed. I hope you'll find that on your own. So, you got these verses that say God blesses people. You have an entire book that starts with the word blessed. God wants to bless people. 
But wait, there's more. Because if you think, uh, go to the New Testament, the very first block of teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew is in Matthew chapter 5. First two verses talk about him going up, getting ready to teach. Verse 3, the first word out of his mouth is blessed. It's this it's in Greek, but it's the exact word that would be translated. If you translate it back to Hebrew, it would be that same word that Hebrew uses here in Psalm 119 for blessed. It's the exact same idea. God tells us in the longest psalm of all, He wants to bless us. He starts a book with that word, and the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are blessed. And if you don't get it, in, those, in Jesus' teaching, the first nine verses that He speaks all begin with the word blessed. God does want to bless us, but He's not going to bless just any old behavior. You know, a teacher is not going to reward and bless students who cheat on their quizzes or exams. A parent can't reward a child who is constantly lying to them. No, but if we live our lives the way God wants us to, He promises blessing. And the only way to know how He wants us to live is to read His Word. That's why Psalm 119 starts the way it does. Blessed are y'all who do these things. How do you know that those are things you should do? You find those in His Word. So again, when we read the Bible, it's never an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end to help us know the Lord better. So really, I want to ask again and just answer it deep down. Do we have any reason to doubt that God wants good things for us? Do we have any, more, any reason to doubt any longer that God wants to bless each and every one of us and He will when we do things His way? Before this service, we got together, a few of us, to pray. And James Schaefer prayed about the Lord giving me joy as I was preaching. Now, I didn't say anything then, but James, I've had joy for six weeks, ever since I've been looking at this passage. So his prayer was right on. I hope you walk away with joy. I mean, finding out the Almighty of the world, of the universe, wants to do something good for you, that should bring a smile to your face. That should bring joy. And so in verse 4, it's enough time on verse 3, verse 4 says, You, God, have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. That's God's perspective. Why did He give His word? Various reasons. But we never can lose sight of the fact that when God speaks, that's authoritative by definition. And when he does give his commands and his rules and his prohibitions, he expects them to be obeyed. You know, God, it's, it's an old joke, but God never gave the ten suggestions, right? He doesn't ask us what we think would be the best commands to put in the Bible. No, he knows what he's doing. 
He's given them, our role is to keep them diligently, continually. So, what we can do if we, if I could, um, well, no, I don't have time for that. Verse 5. He says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast or continual in keeping your statutes. This is a prayer, y'all. It's a statement, yes, but it's, it's a statement that he would pray, Lord, I want to be steadfast in obeying you. Help me, please, to, to be able to do that. And verse 6 continues that idea. Because if he's steadfast, faithful, steady, in keeping God's statutes, then he would not be put to shame. He would not have embarrassment for how he fell short. And especially in their context, most of their things were done in public, not in private. So when he would fail, others would see it and would tend to bring some shame upon him and he would bring shame then upon the Lord. He doesn't want that. We don't want that. So as you begin to study the Bible, read the Bible, pray. Pray that God would help you understand it and live it. One thing I pray many times, not every night, but many times, is Lord, as I'm getting ready to read the Bible, Lord, help me to understand your word or this portion of your word better than I ever have before. Pray something like that. Pray something else. But pray and expect God to work in you as you're reading. Verse 7, a second thing we can do, not only pray for His help, but let's continue to learn His Word. He says, I will praise you or thank you, it's the same word in Hebrew, with an upright, sincere heart when I learn your righteous rules need to learn them before we can praise him for them. And finally, he says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. We can summarize that as dedicate yourself continually, not only to learning, but to doing, to obeying, to keeping his statutes. Now, the end of verse 8 sounds like a real bummer, doesn't it? What a way to end a stanza. But it's not. It's actually somewhat like some of the British speak today to say, don't do this, but what I really mean is do this over here. When he says, don't forsake me, he doesn't believe God's going to forsake him. He's instead saying, Lord, stay with me every step of the way, because without you, I will fail. But with you, I will, and only with you can I succeed. Guys, I don't know any other way to say it. God wants to bless you, each and every person in here. But you got to do it His way. Are you willing to pursue Him through His Word and allow Him to bless you as He would like? Let's pray. Father, I, I just pray that that one major idea would go out of here with each one of us, and that is that you desire to bless us. You desire to do good things 
for us and in us and with us. Give us, O Lord, the willingness to desire to read your word and to keep it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.